If you're new here this morning, my name is Floyd, and um, do the majority of the preaching and teaching here at Cornerstone. We are finishing up 1 Peter, and I should have went back and looked to see exactly when we started. I think it was last fall sometime, and I was at a, at a, um, a workshop recently. Locally, there was, a, there was a pastor's conference going on, and I was at a workshop, and, and a couple guys were talking about preaching, and one of them said that he preached his way through the Gospel of John, and I think he said it took him like four or five years to get through the Gospel of John, and I felt a little better about how slowly I moved through passages. I'm like, well, I'm not, at least I'm not moving that slow, and I'm getting somewhere. So we are ending our study in First Peter this morning. Next Sunday, we will pick it up in Second Peter, and I think Billy is going to introduce that book uh, to us and, and start sharing out of Second Peter. And there's, and there's a number of things. There's a little bit of a different tone in Second Peter than what there is in First Peter. There, there's a number of years that separate the two books and the two letters that Peter wrote. First Peter, as you know, has to do with Peter wanting the readers to be anchored in hope in a season of suffering. While they're going through a difficult time, that they would find themselves anchored in Christ. Because of knowing that if they anchor themselves in Christ, then it doesn't matter what happens in their life, that they'll be okay. That their faith would, would be grounded and attached to the solid rock of Jesus Christ. And every generation finds itself in seasons and times that can be unsettling, times when either things in their personal life or things in a community or in a nation or in the world can sort of rock our world. And returning back and saying, so where's, where is our hope? Where do I anchor my life? What do I attach myself to? to face the storms of life and the seasons. And we've covered a lot of ground in 1 Peter. I mean, we've looked at suffering quite a bit because it talks about suffering. We've looked at how we should live in this world. We've looked at the moral implications of how we live in this world. We've looked at government and what we do in a season of suffering in relationship to government. Um, Looked at the, the fiery trial and how God purifies us in the process of those fiery trials. Even looked at church elders and talked about humility last Sunday. As he wraps up this book, the call is to stand firm, but it's in the context of standing firm in a battle. And he acknowledges the fact that we're in a context where there is an enemy, he calls him the adversary or the devil, that is actively waging war against us. And that's how he closes his book, or this letter. And so we're going to look at that. We're going to pick it up in verse 8, and we're going to go to the end, to verse 14. What I'd like to do this morning is just read the text at once, and then um, we'll kind of pick it apart from there. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8. You're welcome to follow along if you have a Bible with you, or it's up on the screen also. Starts out, it says, Be sober-minded. 
Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So Peter begins this section, this text begins with this warning. There's a warning here, and that's the first part of this text, is there's the warning. Watch out for your adversary. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I remember a number of years ago, I was a youth pastor, and every Wednesday night, our living room would just fill up with teenagers. We'd have, you know, somewhere between 20 and 30 kids, and, you know, they'd be tucked away in all the little corners and sitting on folding chairs and so forth, and we'd do a Bible study every Wednesday night in our living room. And I remember coming on to this text, and we started out that night, and I just sort of painted a picture for these kids. I said, imagine there's a guy, we'll call him Buford, because I don't know anybody named Buford, Um, and he said that he is out to kill you. In fact, he's, he's vowed to kill you. And you know it. You're not sure what he looks like. But somebody told you that they saw him around the area. In fact, while somebody was walking in, they saw him slipping around our yard. Would it change the way you felt right now? He's armed. He's out to get you. His stated intention is to kill you. And he's not very far away. Old Buford. And some of the kids, you know, just did what kids do. You know, kept looking at their phones, pretending that they had the Bible app on it. Few of the other kids, you know, were kind of like wide-eyed, like, oh my goodness, that's a horrible scenario. So that's kind of the picture that Peter is painting for these people when he says, be sober, be watchful. He says, your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion with the intentions of devouring. And he's reminding us of the reality that we are in a battle and that we have an enemy that is very real. And the devil at no point in Scripture is explained as a mythical figment or or representation of evil. It's not mythical. He's real. He's a real fallen angel. 
a physical being. And I know there's a lot of people in our culture who sort of refer to the devil but don't actually believe he actually exists and that he's just sort of a representation of an idea, kind of like Santa Claus. Doesn't really exist, represents an idea. But at no point in Scripture do we find Satan referred to in that kind of terminology or that picture. The Scripture writers were always explicitly clear that we are living our lives in the context of a real physical enemy who is attempting to destroy our lives and to attack our faith. Ephesians chapter 6 is one of those passages where it's explicitly clear. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 is another one. But there's a number of times when Jesus refers to that old enemy, the adversary. The word adversary that Peter uses in this context is the same word that you would use for a prosecuting attorney. Like it's almost a legal term. It's someone who brings accusation. Someone who accuses before the judge. And again, you find that running consistent with other places that Scripture refers to the devil. Things like the story of Job, for example, where the devil is, is accusing Job of only serving God because there's benefits in it for him, like physical benefits. And God is saying, you don't understand that there's a different reason my children serve me. And he, they get into almost a wager God's saying that I could take everything away from Job, he would still serve me. Because the one thing the enemy doesn't understand is worship that is motivated by love. Because he doesn't experience it. Another scene in Revelation chapter 12 where it talks about the accuser of the brethren who accuses God, accuses them before God day and night. And it says that they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives unto death. It's a whole other sermon. But this idea of the enemy as an adversary, an accusing entity, accusing attorney, accusing us of wrongdoing, and with that, the attempt to destroy our lives is consistent with the rest of Scripture that he prowls around, Peter says, like a roaring lion, which of course sent me to Dr. Google, and I'm asking, why do lions roar? Because I've heard this in sermons, and I've heard that lions roar to instill fear in their prey. So I'm on Google, you know, is this actually true? Maybe. But it's more about establishing dominance. They say a lion's roar can be heard five miles away on a clear night. And that they roar in the dark, almost always. But it's about establishing dominance and and an authority. And so, Peter draws on that imagery, and he says, your enemy... The devil, the accuser, goes around attempting by his message to establish dominance in you. 
with a, as a roaring lion, roaring in the dark. And it often is those dark times when the roar is the loudest, isn't it? It's the times when we're going through difficult times and seasons, when the lies of the enemy, even though we may know it intellectually, that, that it's lies, but they feel so true. Things like, God's not watching. It doesn't make a difference when you pray. And people don't like you. You're all alone. This is not going to end well. This is going to end horribly. And all of those messages that come in the darkness are that roar to establish dominance in our lives. And it's one of the reasons that I love that he talks about this. And then when he gets to verse 11, he sort of closes the chapter. He closes the idea before he gives the, the final reminder. And he says, to him be the dominion forever and ever. He's talking about Jesus and he acknowledges that there is an enemy who is like a roaring lion attempting to establish this dominance, this control in our lives. But then he talks about resisting him. And we're going to get to that in a moment. But he sort of ends that thought with saying, but to him, Jesus Christ, be dominion forever and ever. And he's saying, you may be in the context of lies and messages that are attempting to gain dominance in your life. But he says, stand firm, resist, so that Jesus is, has dominion forever and ever. Amen. So first, there is this warning. He's the adversary. And he talks about... In light of this context, he says, be sober-minded and be watchful. What's he, what's he referring to? Like, how is he asking us to live when he says, be sober-minded and watchful? He's talking about, you need to be paying attention that life does not impair your judgment. He's using the same language that we would use for somebody who's, who's drunk or under the influence of a drug or something like that, something that impairs judgment. And he's saying, don't let your judgment get impaired because life does that. In the daily living of life, we're trying to pay the bills and get the kids here and there. We're trying to maintain the friendships. We're trying to do all the stuff that we want to do out of life. We're trying to squeeze the maximum amount of pleasure out of it that we can. And in the process, our judgment gets impaired and we make decisions that are for our own destruction and not for our own good. We make these little decisions that drive us further and further away from God because of an impaired judgment, because we're not being watchful and we're not aware of the fact that we are living in the context of a battle. People have asked different, you know, I've heard this said before that, that you know, is, is Christianity a cruise ship or a battleship or a fishing boat? I like the fishing boat. It's kind of a battleship, though. It's not designed for creature comfort. Cruise ships are designed for creature comforts. Battleships are designed for an objective. And that's the context that you and I are living our lives in as believers in Jesus. And so in that context, he's saying, pay attention. Be watchful. Be asking yourself, where do these thoughts come from? Who said that? 
the thoughts that pop in your mind and in mine. The thoughts of division, frustration, discouragement, anxiety, and all those tools that our enemy, the adversary, uses to establish control and to establish dominance. You and I are called to be wide awake and be very aware of the presence of evil in the world of, that we live in. And that it is a constant pressure in our lives. That there is always an attempt to establish dominance and to gain control. And I've watched this happen time and time and time again, where the little lies become the big decisions that become an entire lifestyle and a daily living and an identity eventually. Because someone was not paying attention and resisting the evil that they knew in front of them. It's the, well, just this once actions that turn into, we'll do it over and over. Because justice once turns into habits. And he's saying, don't let your impairment get, you don't get your judgment get impaired. He's saying, be sober, be watchful. And that's what he's talking about. And if you're like I am, in the busyness of living life, it is really easy to begin to cut corners on the things that really matter. The, the time spent with God, time spent with God's people, the things that we know are going to grow our faith, the things that we know are going to move us closer to God, and we cut the corners. And over time, it's like this dryness sets in, but then we become comfortable with the dryness. And because we didn't hear a physical roar, we're not recognizing it for what it is. And that is the adversary attempting to gain the control of the decisions of our lives so that he can destroy us because he hates us. So what are we to do? That's the warning. But then, so there's a word of warning in verse 8, but then there's a word of direction. He says, resist him. Like, don't be passive about this. Actively resist the devil. And then he sort of gives us a really solid umbrella principle for how to resist the devil. He says, firm in your faith. In other words, he's saying in the context that you have an enemy who is attempting to destroy your life, establish yourself in your faith and stand there. Don't think that outside of a faith in Jesus Christ that you will recognize the tactics of the enemy because you won't. Neither will I. We're not that smart. It's not as though we are able to understand even 
how the enemy works and attracts our flesh and all those things. We desperately need a walk and a relationship with Jesus Christ, a, a strong faith in Jesus Christ in order to stand against the attacks of the enemy. And so Peter is saying, here's the word of warning, but let me give you a word of direction. In the word of direction is resist the devil, firm in the faith, and then he says, because you're, many of your brothers in the world are suffering also. So this is in the context of people going through difficult times and knowing that they are in a battle and that there's a constant pressure for them to grow discouraged and to start questioning the goodness of God. But he's saying, get firm in the faith, like stand on what you know to be true. And this is not an uncommon direction throughout Scripture. This term, stand firm, comes up over and over through Scripture. I listed some of them right here. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 says, stand firm in the faith. There's several places that it tells us, stand firm in the faith. This is one of those. That faith that brought you to a relationship with Jesus Christ initially, where you trusted Him, where you believed Him, and you trusted Him to forgive you of your sins and give you a new heart. Ephesians talks about stand firm in the battle, in the context of a spiritual battle. Galatians 5 talks about in the context of this struggle between between living by law and living by grace. He's like, stand firm in your freedom. Philippians 1, 27 talks about standing firm in unity and, and drawing us together. Second Thessalonians talks about stand firm, he says, in, in the teachings that they had been taught in their doctrine. He doesn't use the word doctrine, but he talks about teaching or some translations talk about traditions. He says, stand firm in it. Stay with it. And that's what Peter is telling us and his readers. He's saying, in this life, you are in a battle. So he says, you have to resist him. You can't be passive in this battle. And he said, you resist him by standing firm in your faith. And if you're questioning God's goodness, if you're questioning his sovereignty, you are an easy target for the enemy. If you're not grounded in God's goodness, in His grace, in His forgiveness, then all the lies that the enemy brings begin to sound like the truth. And so this term, stand firm, comes up again and again throughout Scripture. Stand firm in your faith, in what you know to be true. Even in times when it doesn't feel true emotionally, you stand firm in God's grace. And I've shared this before here not that long ago, but my wife and I went through a season several years ago. We were just really, really discouraged. And there was lots of reasons to be discouraged. And coming out of that season, I created a what I called a stand firm resolution. I wrote out things that I had committed myself to stand firm in based on the truths of God's word. I will stand firm in the ministry of the gospel. I will stand firm in my belief that God hears the prayers of his children. I will stand firm in the battle because I know I'm in the battle. And, and I just wrote out about five or six things and I keep it in the, in the flyleaf of my study Bible. And I go back to it time and again. Like, these are just my commitments that I will stand firm in the things that God has called me to stand firm in, but he's called you to stand firm in these things. This is how we resist the enemy in our lives. 
We ground ourselves in the truth. This is why we keep encouraging, read the Word, study it, understand it, get together with other people and read it and study it and understand it, pray together. These are the things that ground us in our faith. Those activities, the Christian community that God has called us to, being with other believers who also believe like we do, help ground us in our faith. Isolation makes us easy targets. And that's one of the reasons I referred to it a few moments ago, why I love the scenes that are sort of coming through from Ukraine where you find half a dozen or a dozen Christian people like gathering together and and they'll just literally kneel in a circle. And they're doing this together in the context of suffering and going through difficult times. What are they doing? They're standing firm. They know that while Russia is the enemy, the real enemy is not one that they can even see. Because they're wrestling, they're human, they know, they're wrestling with the same things that you and I wrestle with. When things are going wrong, is God still good? Is He still working in my life? Does He still care? And the messages of, can you still trust God? The questions. And Peter's saying, in the context of having an enemy, an adversary that is roaring against you, that is attempting to establish dominance in your life, he says, stand firm in your faith, resisting him because other people are also experiencing the same kinds of suffering. The same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. I came across um, something by Tim Keller recently about a Christian view of suffering as opposed to a secular view of suffering. I love this. He says, the moralist says in suffering, I hate me. I'm doing wrong. In other words, the one who who thinks that everything is about, um, I earn God's grace. And the relativist who thinks that everything is just relative and and there's no meaning or purpose to life says, I hate thee. God's doing something wrong when I'm in suffering. And the Christian says, God's angry at suffering so much that he suffered for us on the cross so that he can someday end suffering without ending us. That's the Christian view of suffering. That God is not apathetic to suffering. In fact, he hates suffering so much and is so angry at sin and death and suffering, that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus, to die on the cross for you and I so that he could deliver us from the presence of sin and death and suffering without ending us. That's the Christian view. This is the belief of the, of the Christian, the one who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, This is our answer to a world that is wrestling with sin and death and suffering. And the idea that is God even watching? Is he apathetic? And you cannot look at the scene of the cross and accuse God of being apathetic. No one gives their son in apathy. Only one who hates 
the results of sin and suffering and death, would give his own son for you and I so that we would be delivered from sin and suffering. So there's the word of warning. There's the word of direction. And then I love this. There's a word of encouragement in this text. If you keep going to verses 10 and 11, he says, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, listen to what he, what he says he will do. He says, he, himself, he will himself. This is God doing this. He will restore. Isn't that good to know? That God will restore. This is not actually just talking about after we die. I, I believe this is also, there are seasons of suffering. There's also seasons of restoration in our lives. He will restore. He will confirm. He will strengthen. And he will establish you. If the attention of our eyes is on the enemy, it will create a sense of dread and fear. And I'm grateful that in this letter, that Peter takes their eyes and he says, Look, you do have an adversary, you have an enemy. And yes, he's out to destroy you. And yes, you're going through some difficult things. But he quickly moves and he says, but, but, let me encourage you this with this. This battle has already been decided. Who will ultimately reign in power and in dominion has already been determined because of the cross and the empty tomb. When Jesus died to forgive us of our sins, to pay the penalty for, you and our, for your sins and my sins. He did not stay in the grave. He rose again because death couldn't hold him, because death didn't have the power over him, and because he defeated death. You and I have already been given the victory over death. And so that's what re, that Peter is reminding his readers here, and he's reminding us that you and I should pick up our head, and yes, we're in a battle, and yes, there's stuff going on, but our God will reign in victory, that he will ultimately win. And he says, and for you who are going through a difficult time, who are going through suffering, he says, he will restore, and he'll confirm, and he'll establish and strengthen you. That's our God. And when you're standing firm in your faith, that's the God you cling to, is the God who says, I will restore, I'll confirm, and I'll establish, and I'll strengthen you. He's a deeply personal God. And the view of God that is somehow distant in the suffering of his children, like he's just not around. He's busy doing other things. That's not the God of the Bible. And that's not the way he reveals himself in his word. He reveals himself to be a God who is very personal, who does restore, who confirms, who gives you your identity, who establishes and strengthens you and I. And many times our lives are punctuated by difficulty and then watching God restore and establish and strengthen us. 
And have you noticed that the longer you walk with Jesus and the more often you, you experience the restoration, even sometimes when the circumstances are not changing, but you, but you sense the restoration, the power of God at work in your life establishing you, that you find a strength against discouragement, against doubt that is stronger than it's ever been before. You find the believers who have walked with God through the years and all the ups and the downs and the disappointments and the joys and the sorrows and the tears and the laughters, and you find people who are so grounded in their faith that they are strong against the messages of the enemy. Even to the point that they can go after the enemy's attacks on other people. And don't you want to be one of those kind of people who is able to walk alongside of others going through difficult times and say, well, here's what the truth is. He loves you. He will strengthen you. He'll restore you. Stand firm in this. And the encouragement to help each other out in times of difficulty and, and battle. And so there's this, this word of warning be careful, watch out, word of direction, resist him, stand firm. There's a word of encouragement that God will restore in victory. God redeems the story. He writes the story better than we can. And then lastly, in that last section, there is a word of reminder. And it's like Peter sort of closes out the chapter and then he kind of comes back and does a bit of a reminder, almost like an overview. And he talks about by Sylvanus, which is actually the full name for Silas. And I don't know what you know about Silas, but Silas was this wonderful early first generation Christian who was such an encourager. You read about him through the book of Acts different times. Um, if you want to do a fascinating person study in Scripture, go study the person of Silas. He's a, just a great, faithful um, leader in the church, in the first generation church. It says, by Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written briefly to you. So somehow, Silas was involved in the delivery of this letter. Um, most scholars think that he probably carried the letter to the churches from Peter. And, and he says, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. So it's just, what does he say next? He says, stand firm in it. What's he doing? He's reminding them, this is God's grace. Stand firm in it. He says, she who is at Babylon, which is probably a reference to the church at Rome, most likely. Maybe a clandestine reference because in that moment, uh, Nero had already set fire to Rome and was blaming the Christians. So he says, she who is at Babylon, possibly referring to the church at Rome, is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, so does Mark, my son, greet one another with a kiss of love, which we're going to do afterwards here. I'm kidding. <laughs> What's he saying? He's reminding them of God's grace and the fact that their anchor is in God's grace and in the good news of the gospel in their lives. And in that context, he's saying, don't forget to love each other. We don't culturally greet each other with kisses like they still do in the Middle East in some places. But do you communicate 
your love for each other when you interact with people? Do you communicate how much you appreciate each other? We're in a context that's a little bit unique because we're a relatively young group, young church, and so a lot of us are not used to being around each other. Some of you don't know each other's names, and so you're saying, well, how do I do that? Well, you do it with the people you know, and then you learn to know some more people. But, but find that kind of a relationship with other people where you're able to communicate your appreciation for them and they are able to communicate their appreciation for you. We're far too easily, or we, we far too easy criticize. Like we let people know what we don't like. Or maybe we're a little better than that. We just shut our mouths and don't talk about what we don't like. But what doesn't come natural is for us to communicate how much we appreciate each other and then let somebody know. When, and I'm not sure exactly who put it all together for pastor appreciation, but different ones of you have been taking these weeks and just taking a week and, and praying for pastors. And usually there's, you know, oftentimes there's like a little card or something that says, hey, appreciate you or whatever. And I'm, I love it. That's awesome. I, I'm deeply grateful. But I also hope that that's happening with each other that you're finding ways to let each other know, hey, I care about you and I appreciate you. That's what he's talking about here. Why? Because as we live out this life in God's grace, we do so in the context of other people who are also going through ups and downs and joys and sorrows and needing God's grace in their lives. And oftentimes, you're the person that God wants to use to communicate his love to somebody if you're open to let him do it. And so this, this reminder that he sort of closes out this chapter with, he points to some people who are standing firm, who are also living and sharing in the grace of God. But this reminder is to us to stand firm in God's grace that you have been forgiven You've been given a new heart. You've been changed from the inside out. Now let it change the way you relate to each other. It's this, what I've received uh, vertically, it translates into how I live horizontally. Like, well, that's the whole thing, isn't it? The truth of what is going on between, my, between God and I is going to change the way that I relate to everybody around me. The notion that somehow I can be a recipient of God's grace, but it doesn't affect anything in my life, that's not found anywhere in Scripture or the gospel. It has to affect our lives. Where God's grace is at work in our lives, it changes the way we see people and it changes the way that we feel about them which will ultimately change the way that we treat them. This whole warning and direction, encouragement, and reminder is in the context of the call to humility if you were here a week ago. That's the message of 1 Peter. It's also the message of the Bible. And so 
the wrap-up is this. He's just said, to him be the dominion forever and ever. And he wraps up with this reminder. Stand firm in the grace of God. Remind yourself continually of God's grace in your life. As you read his word, and as you pray, as you interact with other believers, there's this constant reminder of God's grace, and then communicate that love to each other. Charlie, if you guys want to come on up, I want to bring this to a close. A number of years ago, um, I had this really cool physical reminder of this truth, sermon in a sentence. The Christian response to the presence of evil is to stand firm in God's grace. And God gave me this really cool, like very physical um, scene that happened. It was, I think it was spring of 2015 or fall of 2014, somewhere. It was just a really, really difficult time. And, uh, and I was working um, out east of town and and I was pulling up to my parking spot, and when we had done the landscaping there at, at that business, we had put in a couple of bushes that were called burning bushes, um, which, I don't know about you, it makes me think about Moses and the burning bush, but we put in these burning bushes in our landscaping. Those things took off, no pun intended, like a house of fire. I mean, they grew like crazy. I mean, all of a sudden, they were eight, nine feet tall and like eight feet in diameter. And it's just this beautiful red burning bushes. And one of them, close to where I parked my truck, for reasons that we never figured out, started to die. And it kept getting worse and worse and worse until there was almost nothing left. And it coincided with a very, very difficult time in my own life. I had just resigned at church I was pastoring. Wasn't sure if God was done with me or if, if I had anything left in me. Wasn't even sure if I wanted to be around church. It was just a really, really dark time. And I had a phone call. It was a really tough phone call. Um, I don't remember who I was talking to. I just remember that it was, it was really critical in nature. And it hurt. I was hurting. And I was on the phone, and I pulled up in my parking spot, and, and I'm on the phone. I got off the phone. I'm just sitting there and kind of processing the conversation I'd had. And I looked over, and I looked at that little burning bush in there. And all that was left that was still alive was, was one stick, and it was about that long that still had some leaves on it. Everything else in the bush was dead. And we were cutting it out. And there's just that one little thing down by the ground, about, you know, about 16 inches tall and about 6 inches in diameter, out of a bush that had been about 9 feet tall and about, you know, 8 feet in diameter. And I told God, I said, I feel like that bush right now. I don't feel like there's much left. My faith feels like that little thing there in comparison to what it once was. And, you know, there's tears running down my face, and I'm just like, I, I, I'm just, I don't know where to go from here. And sat there waiting for this amazing revelation, it just didn't happen. <laughs> and I went ahead and walked on in, I was like, yep, I feel like that bush. 
just not much left. But one of the things, and I think it was the Spirit of God, reminded me of what is said in, in one of the books of the prophecies and then, and then revisits in Hebrews where it says that he, that when he comes, that he will um, not snuff out a burning wick, that a, that a bruised reed he, he, uh, he won't break off. Like where, the, where, where the, the faith is small and it's weak, that he'll kind of restore it and he'll kind of reaffirm it. And that's all I had was just that. And then on a very personal level, just gradually over time, things began to happen. Faith began to get stronger. Some passion for ministry began began to come back. Care for people began to show up again in my own heart. And ironically, that bush took off too. And like less than a year later, that thing was like full bloom again. And it's like six feet tall and, and um, it's this beautiful burning bush. A couple years ago, we were talking about, you know, those bushes are about out of hand and we should just cut them down and do something different. I couldn't bring myself to do it. But now that I'm not at that office, I guess they can go ahead and do it now. But, but I, love the, I love the physical reminder. There was just a physical reminder of how God does that in our lives. And listen, here's the point. Wherever you're at this morning, if you're at a point in your life and you're saying, I got to admit, my faith is not where it should be. It's just weak. I believe in God, but I wish I had the strength of faith that I see in other people. I wish that faith was so strong that when the things of life come and they happen, that I wouldn't even waver in my doubt. Here's my point. God can work with that too. He can work with the little stem of faith. And where there is faith, he'll keep his promises. And the promise of his word here in 1 Peter is this, that he himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you because he's a good father. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are a God who does restore your children. Thank you for this promise and your word. Thank you that that you love us, um, that even in the times of darkness, when, when we hear the roar of the lion, trying to establish control and dominance in our lives, that your word is stronger. God, give us a grace, all of us, to stand firm in the faith. Pray that for our brothers and sisters all around the world. Just that strength to stand firm in your grace. Lord, help us to do a better job of communicating our appreciation for each other and let each other know that, that we care and that we do appreciate each other. We love each other. And so God, um, thank you for the work that you are doing in our hearts. If there's anyone here this morning, Lord, that, that feels like their faith is weak and that they're in a dry place, Lord, would you remind them of these truths and establish them and give them the grace to stand firm, all for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.
Amen.